0: Hello and welcome to One Light, Dialogues on Religion with Dr. Farhad Shafti and your host, Veronica Polo. In this series of talks, Farhad and I discuss the role of religion and spirituality using the Islamic tradition as our framework, while simultaneously searching for universal truths that go beyond religious affiliation. Join us on our journey to untangle common misconceptions and deepen our understanding of the monotheistic tradition and beyond. Hello everybody.
1: Nice to be back with you. Assalamu alaikum. Today's episode is about women and we have a special guest with us today. Her name is Sutara Akram. So, Sutara, will you please introduce yourself to us? Thank you, Veronica. Assalamu alaikum to
2: everyone. Um, thank you for inviting me to this, uh, Veronica and Farhad. Introductions, it's always hard to say, isn't it, what you do? Somebody asked me that question and said, what do you do? I'm not entirely sure, but I'll just do a very, very brief overview, really. Um, So I live in Leeds in the UK. Um, I work at the University of Leeds. And a quick disclaimer to say, of course, that whatever I'm saying today, I'm saying in my personal capacity. Um, I work as a manager at Leeds University. I'm also a PhD researcher there. I'm working on my thesis on the idea of prohibition of riba or usury in Islam um, and trying to define and I would say reconstruct the idea of riba. I am hoping to complete my thesis, um, hopefully by the end of this year. I'm an immigrant from Pakistan. I have lived in the UK now for nearly 15 years. Uh, It's interesting journey this, trying to kind of compare, I suppose, two cultures and two philosophies and ways of looking at the world. And that certainly enriched my my knowledge and my experience. Um, I'm a mum as well. I have two sons, uh, twins who are 18 now. So they tell me they're adults, um, which is great. So I'm just waiting for them to get jobs now and help pay some of the bills. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I think I've had a, a really interesting, a really fulfilling, rewarding career here in the UK. And my PhD has opened up lots and lots of new learning for me. Me, just new doors, just my understanding of Islam has been enriched in the last mm-hmm. few years.
1: Yeah, I bet. Mm-hmm. Well, sitara I met you online as I have met a lot of other wonderful people, one of the upsides of social media nowadays. And one of the things that has struck me since I've known you is the way that you express your ideas and your knowledge of Islam. And the nuance with which you are able to approach it so both the respect which you have for islam but also your ability to critique the way in which it can be interpreted or practiced so i think that's um really valuable and of course particularly i like your writings about women and islam which is why i asked you to join us today so i guess my opening question which is a pretty wide question So Muslims will generally say, and they're rather fervent about this, that Islam protects and honors women. And I even know people who, um, I know women who became interested in Islam because of what they felt was a way that Islam honors women. On the other hand, we have critics of Islam that say that Islam is oppressive to women and they'll bring up certain verses like the beating verse to prove that. So there's these two realities, but within Muslim society themselves, there also seems to be a discrepancy between the social realities that women live and what Muslims profess women are treated like. So with that, I'm going to start with you, Sitara, Although I'm also going to be asking Farhad for his views as always. So what are your thoughts?
2: I mean, my first thought is that this is a multifaceted question. (laughs) It's not that easy to answer. Oh, no, it's not. So, yeah, I think I'm going to just, I think the important thing for me and for listeners to know as well is my position on this. And I think as a Muslim woman who is very, a very, very strong believer in the wisdom of the Quran and the Sunnah. My position is always that of respect for Islam and the Islamic tradition. When I say Islamic tradition, the tradition is about how we've understood Islam, how we've interpreted the main sources of of knowledge in Islam, the Quran, the Sunnah, the Hadith, and and, and the writings of our great scholars. That's not to say that interpretations can't be critiqued. Um, and that's where I see my role is when I begin to understand them. I also understand that interpretations are a human endeavor. And because they are a human endeavor, they can be flawed and are open to criticism and open to review and open to fresh thinking. hmm. And I think one of the things we're seeing now in in the world of Islam is, in my view, quite a a messed up relationship, quite a a complicated and I think a dysfunctional relationship with our own history. And what we've often done is that we've taken historical interpretations of Islam to be Islam. Mm. And so a lot of the at the moment, what you hear in terms of the discourse on women in Muslim societies is unfortunately very troubling. Mm-hmm. So you will often come across interpretations which have become very popular and of course because of the internet now, a lot of people have access to this information and so interpretations such as women are of an inferior intellect, for example, or the witness is a woman's testimony is not as valuable as a man's testimony or a woman's place is inside her home and she shouldn't be stepping out. The question about the presence of women in the public sphere, all of those things have come under a lot of discussion and scrutiny, but also there's there are a lot of loud voices. Um, which um i suppose which overpower the discourse and in a way the, the the most the i suppose the saddest thing is that women's own voices have been drowned out in that so you know when you interpret the quran you want to interpret the quran from from the male perspective but also the female perspective and i think together that enriches it because we do share a planet you know mm-hmm. it, it, this this guidance is for all of us so i think what you then have are a number of contradictions within the islamic world itself so you know the Quran talks about human dignity and kindness and justice um, and it does honor women, absolutely it does. Um, If you look at the social reality in which the Quran is revealed, the Quran is actually quite a revolutionary text, establishing property rights for women for example, um, absolutely declaring that female infanticide is forbidden, it's haram, Um, giving rights to women in marriage, Um, All of those things, when you look at them in the context in which they were revealed, those those are very profound social changes. Now, they were interpreted in a certain way and they were interpreted, let's say, two, three, four hundred years after the revelation of the Quran. And it's in those interpretations that you see the social realities of that time creeping in. But when we take those interpretations, we take them in a very decontextualized fashion. So, for example, if you look at women living in in Arabia or the lands around it in in the Muslim world, let's say a thousand years ago, it would make perfect sense for a woman to have full protection from a man. It would make sense for her to stay at home because travel wouldn't be safe. So you can imagine scholars trying to create safeguards for women. But if you look at it now, we would see those very interpretations to actually be quite oppressive. And I think the point I'm trying to make here is that interpretations need to be refreshed, and it's the job of every generation to refresh them. And unfortunately, our intellectual tradition has been in decline for a long period of time, so we haven't done that refreshing. So often, the the historical reports that we receive, we detach them from their own history, from their own social reality, and we plonk them into our modern social reality just as they are without going through that appropriate process of, of refreshing those interpretations. So Islam honours w- women. You can see that, you know, from a, in principle, yes, it does. But what does honouring women look like in the year 2021 is going to be different from what it looks like in the year, I don't know, 1021, a, millennia, a millennium ago. What further complicates things is that Muslim societies have are and still are by and large patriarchal Um, there is a power system at play and I think Muslim women being displaced from those communities of interpretation as we call them you know those spaces where knowledge of Islam is being created the fact that Muslim women have been displaced from it means that you have very male-centric views of various um, issues pertaining to women
1: we're all quite used to seeing these images of panels about Islam and every face is is a male's face. And where's the woman's face? Where is she? Mm-hmm. Or even conferences about women in Islam and all of the speakers are men. So that seems to be quite prevalent.
2: It is. And it's not just conferences, uh, Veronica. It's also if you look at mosque committees, for example, I'll give you a very simple example. Most mosque committees, even here in Britain, have got men on the panel and there is an equal representation from women. So the moment you start talking about spaces for women in mosques, there is no empathy, no understanding of what it means for a woman to have equal access to the mosque. Well, if you had, your panel was representative of the, of the genders and you had, you know, 30 men or 15 men and 15 women on the panel, you can imagine that the discussion will happen quite differently. So that's right. just one small example of how those spaces have been, not been occupied by women. And I think they have been displaced from those spaces and that's where the whole power dynamic in society comes in. So you have these wonderful teachings of the Quran and you have this inspiring example of the prophet who when you, when you look at the changes that he made, absolutely he's championing women's rights. He's saying, open mosques for women, don't even stop them from coming for Fajr or Isha prayers, you know, even in the dead of night they should be able to come into a mosque and they should feel safe enough to do that. And yet you don't see Muslim societies actually implementing that. Um, So I think losing in touch with our own tradition, losing touch with our own sources of knowledge, not developing robust education systems, which would give people that education about Islam, not just, you know, education about secular sciences, but also how we create our own religious tradition in our cultures and how that impacts us has had this profound impact. And it is absolutely true to say, and I'm not somebody who speaks about this from a defensive position at all. I think truths are truths, and we should be honest about it. We should be self-reflecting. It is a fact that in a lot of Muslim countries, Muslim women are second-class citizens. They do not receive the rights that um, Allah has given to them, that Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu has given to them. And it is these real-life examples which are then taken by the critics of Islam, To say, well, you say one thing, but you do another, that Mm -hmm. there is a double standard here. So you say that, you know, the Quran is this wonderful book, this wonderful guidance. And yet what what we see on the ground is is very, very painful oppression of women. It is very painful. um, And I think that's the situation we're in. There is a long historic journey here that we need to recognize. um, And absolutely, we need to think about what our relationship is to some of the interpretations we've adopted and what we do about them.
1: Mm -hmm. Sorry,
2: that's a long answer, but I did say it
1: was a multifaceted question. That was wonderful. That was wonderful and and very well summarized. And I was just entranced listening to you. Yes, uh, what are your thoughts, Farhad?
3: Well, first, assalamu alaikum. And I'm very happy that we have Sitar here with us. My thoughts, uh, I totally agree. Uh, When Sitar was talking about this, uh i was looking for a couple of um writings that i had many 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 years ago uh, and i thought maybe just giving them as some code might be interesting uh so one is um butaina shaaban who is a syrian politician and also has insights and views on islam Uh, she writes in her book the Muted Voices of Women Interprets, uh, which, is, which is a chapter in the book Faith and Freedom. Uh, and she writes there that there are few women interpreters in the history of Islam, because women women are seen to be the subject of the Islamic Sharia and not its le- legislators. Yet, even the few interpreters who have appeared during the long history of Islam have been kept at the periphery; their views never allowed to influence Islamic legislation. When she says, even some of them who were there, you know, people do not pay much attention to them in the history of scholarship. I can give you, for instance, example of one of them, Nazira Zain al-Din. Uh, she died in 1977. She was from Lebanon, and she was a daughter of a very, very high-ranking judge in Lebanon and at the age of 22 she was a writer a researcher an Islamic scholar and she wrote a book at the time and in that book i just quote one thing that she wrote in that book of course the translation of it one of the main arguments of Nazira Zain al-Din was that the directives of the Quran that appear to be limiting women were in fact suitable for the norms and the culture of the time, and that one needs to appreciate the real wisdom behind these directives. Now, bear in mind that this is a sort of writing that, whether you agree or disagree with, you will see these days. This was a woman who wrote that in 1928, and that just shows how insightful was her thinking. You know, we, we may agree or disagree with what she wrote, but I'm asking the audience, how many of them have even heard the name of the Nazira Zainatti? Uh, and that, that that's unfortunately a very sad reality. Um, I have been participated in, in, in a number of <clears throat> groups and discussion groups where the subject of women and hijab were brought up and I was, always felt uncomfortable to even comment there simply because there was no woman in that group. I felt the very fact that we are a group of men even if we are defending the right of women even if you are doing that I always felt uncomfortable talking because you know if you want to talk about women, why don't ask them <laughs> or at least let them to be part of the discussion rather than just deciding about them, whether we want to give them their rights or we don't want to give them their rights or we do not consider any rights for.
1: Well, it's hard to invite women to meetings like this when in certain contexts, there's a very strong feeling like there has to be a separation between men and women. I mean, that, that's been very hard for me because I I didn't grow up as a Muslim. And once I started to inhabit more Muslim spaces, because I found the richness and the beauty there. But one of the things that I had a lot of trouble with was this idea of gender segregation, because I've always had friendships with men and my friendships with men have always been very rich. And I thought, do I have to give this up? Does this mean I can't be friends with men anymore? I'm going to give up this, this wonderful opportunity. I like... The friendships that I have with women, but the friendships with men offer me something different. Men can be different. They can be sometimes more rational. And that's something that appeals to me sometimes. And I don't want to give that up. Luckily, you know, I, I have been surrounded by what I consider to be very open Muslim. So in the end, it hasn't been a big issue. But I know in more traditional communities, um, I can't even think about really approaching men, you know, without a specific reason. So, I guess a question that I have is Are the addressees in the Quran men only, or are women also addressees? Because it seems like sometimes the Quran is talking about women, not to women. And is this maybe why it seems like we get this idea that only men should be legislating, because the Quran was revealed mostly for men? That's a
2: really interesting question. I think what I will do is the main legislating thing I will pick up, but I'm going to leave the Quran addressee issue to Farhad because he is much more of an expert in the Quran
3: and its its style of speech. Uh, yes, sure. Uh, uh, the answer, Veronica, in my, in, in my understanding is yes and no. <laughs> it, it, it depends how we look at this. Um, firstly, as you know, everybody that has a basic understanding of Arabic knows that in Arabic, you have a different form of verb for male and female. You know, in English, for instance, you may say he or she, but even in English, the verb is the same for man and woman, for male and female. In Arabic, even the verbs will have different forms. Uh, It is not really the style of Arabic language to continue saying he or she, and also repeat the verb in two different forms as well to make it clear that, hey, we are talking about both genders here. That is one thing. So yes, you can find that many, or in fact most of the verses of the Qur'an that are um, addressing people seem to be having a form of the verb or noun that are more male, but because of this ruling that I said, uh, that does not mean that these are just for men. That, that's the first thing that we need to understand. The other thing is that uh, we need to understand the convention of the language as well. So i give you an example. So in An-Nur, for instance, we have this verse that says <clears throat> the meaning of that would be men that merchandise and business will not stop them from being reminded of god now rijal is plural of rajul and would mean men but again if you know the conventional Arabic, you will understand that actually here, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that, well, if women are doing that, this verse is not talking about them. The verse is talking about men. That's not the case. Rijal here is based on that convention, referring to people who are in a very high level, have some high respect, and you re- refer to them like this, Rijal, yeah? Yeah. Of course, you can argue that, well, yeah, but still it is using rajul and grijal for that expression. That's true, but that's the case in any language. I mean, literally, what is the meaning of woman in English? Uh, Woman in English means little man, right? But nobody today says that, oh, why do you call call them a woman, that is is a disgrace. No, it's it's a convention, right? It belongs to the time that, well, you know, uh, men had dominance in the society, and that was not just in Arabia. It was in many places in the world. Um, I did say yes and no. So this was the no part of it. The yes part of it is that I need to be firm and do appreciate that despite what I just said, I think it is fair to say that in comparison, the verses that specifically are talking about men and issues related to them seems to be more than the ones for women. But that is simply because of the structure of the society at the time. Men were influential in many things. Men, in particular men, were participating in in battles, in wars. Um, heads of the tribes in most places in Arabia were men. Uh, the tribal system was very important. Uh, if, if if the man in the tribe would convert, for instance, to Islam, that would influence the whole tribe. So that only made sense at the time. But do consider this, and I'm sure Sudari can elaborate on it, that when it comes to talking about the real, real things, interestingly enough, then Quran does do that he and she. Al-Mu'mineen wal-Mu'minat, Muslimin wal-Muslimat emphasizes on that Mm -hmm. to make it clear that, look, look, don't look at this surface. Look at the depth of it. When it comes to the depth of it, it's just the
1: same. When it's talking about issues of faith and
3: belief in uh, God. uh, Salvation in the hereafter, uh, praising good, good good moral and moralities, and that sort of thing. So I leave it I leave it there for so. Thank
2: you. Thank you very much for that. That was very interesting and um and actually some of the points you've made I think I'll I'll agree with them and just emphasize them um slightly um as well. I'm not an expert in Arabic. Um my views of quite similar to to what Farhad has said about how the Quran uses a style of address. Um, I believe Professor Khalid Abul Fadl has done some work on this and explained how the style of address, when the Quran talks about a group, it can adopt a masculine style of address, but that does not automatically exclude women. So um exegetes of the Quran who understand Arabic language understand these nuances really well and that's how they then explain the Quran. Um you can you can see his work some of these um points that he's made um on on his um website searchforbeauty.org I believe the, the website address is. So the Quran is not excluding women in any way. I think the Quran is actually doing something very interesting and And again, you know, coming at this from the point of view of a believer, Allah is the most just and most merciful. So when I'm looking at the Quran, I'm always thinking about it from the point of view of fairness and justice and mercy. And when you read the Quran, the sense you get very clearly is that the Quran is talking to a patriarchal society. Now, that doesn't mean that the Quran is a patriarchal text. That's two different things right? What happens is that the Quran gets interpreted as a patriarchal text, but it's not a patriarchal text. It's talking to a patriarchal society. And the reason why it adopts certain views and asks men to make some changes is what Farhad has already hinted on, that men were hugely influential and in position of power. So they could bring those changes that could bring justice to society. And I think that there is a huge lesson in this for Muslim men of today, that if they have the power and the influence to exclude women from interpretive communities, then I would address them and say, bring them back into those spaces that you've excluded them from. So quite naturally, my addressees would be men because they have taken measures to exclude women. And in a way, you can see then that when the Quran is talking to a patriarchal society, it's trying to bring justice back into a patriarchal society. Now, that does not mean that the Quran is a patriarchal text. All of the verses in the Quran to do with ethics, to do with faith, to do with salvation, always establish a principle of parity. So whenever I've had discussions with men, especially those who come from ultra-conservative backgrounds, and they tend to have quite derogatory views of women, I always start by um, discussing Surah Al-Ahsaab, where in verse 35, Allah says very clearly, uh, Muslim men and Muslim women. Muslim men who have faith, Muslim women who have faith. Muslim men who pray, Muslim women who pray. Muslim men who give charity, Muslim women who give charity. Muslim men who guide their private parts, Muslim women who guide their private parts. Now what the Quran does is that establishes parity between Muslim men and women as believers. Now if we were to look at this from an ontological point of view, you look at Is there something inherently flawed in in women which makes them second-class believers? There isn't. The Quran is actually dismantling the ontology that had developed in the Judeo-Christian narratives of women, which those narratives did see women as second-class believers. Um, The Quran is dismantling that and establishing that parity. Now, there is... Our exegetical tradition, how the Qur'an itself is interpreted, I mean, in a way, it's a separate discussion, but there are tensions in there as well about how the Qur'an itself is interpreted. You know, do you look at just the language of the Qur'an? Do you look at the historical context and how much of that can you bring in? Do you interpret the Qur'an on the basis of hadith? Um uh, traditions, uh, the, tafs- the tafsir bil math- ma'thur, as we call it, which is the dominant tradition, by the way, in, in exegesis, is you, you look at the Quran and you look at you know the, the hadith from the Prophet and you come up with an interpretation. But that is one methodology, and so depending on what methodology you use, you can have different interpretations of the Quran as well. And we have now certainly seen some amazing um, uh, dynamic um, interpretation, uh, techniques of interpretation coming in now, um, if you look at. Uh, scholars like ibn ashur if you look at scholars like amin asan islahi and others who give more emphasis to the linguistics of the quran and the historic and and how the language was understood in its own historical context the, these profound insights emerge when you when you read the same quran whereas if you look at the more traditional tafsir bil masur tradition you will find that there are more patriarchal uh, interpretations will creep into that so, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that the way the Quran has been interpreted interpreted itself can be open to question and critique. But it is true to say that the Quran, whilst not being a patriarchal text, is addressing a patriarchal society and therefore it addresses it in that appropriate fashion. One final thing I want to add here is to do with a thematic understanding of the Quran. Historically, the, the, the Quran has been interpreted as a disparate set of verses you very rarely see interpretive techniques which look at the quran from a coherence point of view from overarching principles so some scholars have done work on that so if you look at fazul rahman for example he's written a book about major themes of the quran now if you look at the major themes of the quran and once and you know anybody who reads the quran i would say even the first chapter would get a sense that the quran is very concerned about justice it's very concerned about fairness it is very much an egalitarian text Um, it when it talks about marriage it says that a man and woman that the basis of a good marriage is is consultation A consultation cannot happen between one superior and one inferior being, consultation is about everybody's opinion being valued. So when you start teasing out the themes in the Quran and the values it embodies, absolutely then the Quran is is a liberatory text. And that's why you see scholars now like Asma Barlas and Amina Wadud and others who are approaching the Quran as 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 a liberatory text. It liberates you from the shackles and the power systems and the oppressions of society. Now, just to say then, why men have ended up becoming the legislators and interpreting the Quran and creating the Sharia is very much a political issue. And I would highly recommend reading a paper that Professor um, Muhammad Fadil has written. I think he's based in the University of Toronto. And it's to do with the witnessing of women and how women were eventually moved out from roles of being judges in court of law and interpreting law. Um, this is his his paper is titled two women one man knowledge power and gender in medieval sunni legal thought so some of the the, the issues we're teasing out today he he is talking about them in his paper and and he's he's he's, he's 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 trying to tease out why women were considered intellectually inferior and and how that principle took hold and what impact it then had on women so When we say that the Quran, the Quran is not a patriarchal text. I think it is sometimes labeled as such. But again, that happens because you decontextualize it. You take it away from the the context, the history in which it is situated first and foremost. Because once we've done that, we're then able to tease out the universal principles from the Quran and apply those to our lives today. And those universal principles are absolutely that male and female believers in the eyes of God are believers. He's not going to discriminate against them because of their gender. That is the principle the Quran establishes. And that is the principle that I think Muslim men and women of today should absolutely keep hold of.
1: Yeah, those are some wonderful insights. But do you feel like thinkers like Islahi or Faslul Rahman, or you mentioned Amina Wadud, you mentioned quite a few people, are they having an influence on the general Muslim populace? Because it's not my sense that they are. It's my sense that they they tend to... um, influence certain groups of people that are more academically oriented Um, but I I don't get a sense that it's impacting Muslim society at at large or am am I wrong about that no I think you're correct about that Veronica I
2: think what I think what what we're seeing in the Muslim world at the moment is actually quite a significant period of change and turbulence so the old systems of orthodoxy are being challenged there are no two two ways i mean jonathan brown has if you if you read his book misquoting muhammad mm-hmm. he particularly talks about this this rupture that's happening in the muslim world the, the rupture is to do with how we look at our hadith canon mm-hmm. right the the, the canonical six collections of hadith how we approach them you know how do we try to make sense of the the many contradictions in those reports etc so there is definitely a rupture happening we know that for the last 150 years or so a lot of Muslim reformers, I would say reformers in in, in quotes, uh, people who are trying to reconstruct religious thought, let's put it that way. We're seeing a lot of those thinkers emerge. Now, whether they've hit critical mass or not, you know, at what point does society shift to giving, the the majority of society shift to giving credibility of their views? I don't think that shift has happened yet, but I'm I'm, I'm very certain that that shift is in the making. And what I'm finding is that particularly, and this is something I'm so proud of, and this is what gives me hope, is that Muslim women are so engaged with the Islamic tradition. And and, and you would imagine that happening anyway, because they're the oppressed group. They're the ones who are fighting for their rights. They want their voice to be heard. And so you see amazing uh, engagement from Muslim women Um, when it comes to critiquing the, the traditional discourses, when it comes to fresh thinking about Islam, thinking about human rights, thinking about the the space women occupy in the world of Islam and in general, what role they have to play. So I do believe that this generation of women, which is so dynamic, you know, when they raise children who are able to think outside the the bounds of orthodoxy, when they're comfortable taking a more, I would say, academic approach to religion and not just a devotional approach to religion, which is what we predominantly have in the Islamic world, I believe that they will be changed, perhaps not in my lifetime, but hopefully it's, it's not far away. Um, there is very much a sense amongst Muslim youth as well that they want they, they want to be secure about their identity as Muslims. Um, many of them see the issues with the secular liberal model of society and they do want to find their roots again as Muslims. So you're right. It's not accepted by the majority yet. But I do feel that there will be a turning point when it will be accepted by the majority. And that might be a few decades away.
1: Yeah, I hope so, too. Also, I feel like change is accelerating in general around the world with technology and climate and many other things. And so the Muslim world also needs to become flexible, because if you're if you are inflexible, you will break. Right. If the winds are shifting too quickly and you don't have that flexibility of thought and adaptation, then you're going to break. And that Mm -hmm. could quite possibly happen to a lot of Muslim communities And I I think it already is because there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of turbulence between ideologies coming from different parts of the world. We're a globalized society. We have access to a lot of information. Not that that's making all of us smarter because in some ways I feel like it's causing certain people to latch on to all kinds of, Now I'm thinking about the United States in particular, but just because we have access to information doesn't mean that we become smarter. So I'm kind of split. There's a part of me that feels hopeful about the world in general, whether I'm talking about Islam or something else, like we will evolve. And there's another part of me that feels still a little bit concerned or cautious because it, I see a world in which you can sort of buy your truth. You can choose your truth. Um And Also, you know, how much time has Muslim society had to adapt and why hasn't why hasn't there been change before? I mean, actually, I feel in certain ways there have been regressions because uh, the Islamic tradition has had some amazing thinkers, writers, philosophers that are sort of been buried and, and not respected or looked at anymore. And so I see regressions so there's a part of me that likes to think that we're always as a humanity able to slowly move forward, even if we take a few steps back. But with, with the Muslim community and the world at large, I, I just don't know right now. I, I have a lot of mixed feelings and emotions yes. in general. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Same. I, I would say the same, but I think my, my problem is that <laughs> I'm always an optimist and, and and I think particularly from what I see now from young Muslim women is so inspiring You know, some of the stories of their struggles are just incredible. And these are women who are very comfortable in their identities as Muslims. Mm -hmm. There are, and I think also on the political front, just a couple of examples, really, which are very interesting and worth watching over the next few years. One is the the, the debate that's erupted in Pakistan after the Aurat March or the Women's March that happens in, in March every year, and how polarizing that's been. But what's very interesting is to look at both sides of the polarity and what views are coming up. Um, And it's, if our orthodox ulema, if our orthodox scholars do not accommodate women's voices, then women are naturally going to look at secular systems which do offer them better rights. They do. I have better rights in Britain as a woman than I do in Pakistan. And so in a way, traditionalism and traditionalist ulema not giving space to women means that some women are looking elsewhere. Then there are other women who are very much grounded in the Islamic tradition, who are, are, feel empowered by that Islamic tradition. And these are the women who are writing about it and trying to um, you know, re-engage with the Quran and trying to re-engage with the example of the Prophet and come away with, new learning and new knowledge for for future generations of Muslim women. And then you have, again, on the political side of things, the the change that we're now seeing in Saudi Arabia, which is hugely interesting, where you've had a very, very powerful, um, I wouldn't use the word clergy, but a very powerful um, lobby of ulema who have worked with the, the Saud family there. And that's how the country was run. And you now have so many changes coming in. I mean, just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, there was a, a very interesting interview um, with the, I think it's the, he's he's the prince in waiting or something, isn't he? The king in waiting? Yes, MBS. MBS. And it was a very interesting talk he gave about um, Hadith and how Hadith is seen as a source of law in Islam and what can and cannot be taken from it because what's happened suddenly to shake the foundations of traditionalism is that whereas religion was being used to say things like women can't drive because we have a hadith report that we use as precedent and say women can't drive or travel on their own suddenly Saudi Arabia is allowing women to drive so then what happens to the status of the hadith report And what it means for your lawmaking. So this is actually not just a political shift, but it's a very profound epistemological shift. It's how we are using our original sources to create law itself and what political changes are affecting that. So you're right, I also have mixed feelings. I think I see behavior in the Muslim community, which is excluding of women, And to be honest, I sometimes become quite bitter and cynical about it. But equally, you see not just these political changes, but also some really powerful um, discourses, these really powerful narratives which are developing now amongst Muslim women themselves, who are very much minded to say, I'm a believer. And as a believer, I'm just as important a believer to God as a man is. And that's where I see myself. And I want to find my identity and my space in Islam. And hence, I'm going to engage with Islam as a tradition and work from that basis, rather than just opting for the secular liberal models of society.
1: That's kind of, I think, where we are at the moment. You brought up the example of MBS in Saudi Arabia. And here I'm going to get myself in trouble. (laughs) But, you know, even though we see some what looks like progress in in Saudi Arabia, I'm, I'm glad to see that. But Then we also have examples of uh, Saudi women's rights activist Lou Jane al-Hathlou. I don't know if you know her, but I I mean, she was was just released from prison recently after being in prison for two years, Mm -hmm. even though the prince eventually changed the laws, but he couldn't permit a woman to be the one to push that. It had to be him. That made that ruling. So you still see the same power tactics going on. There's still Mm There's, there's there's not an opportunity for people to come together in a consensus-based way to discuss these issues. It always has to be a hierarchical, top-down decision-making process. So I'm seeing improvements, but you mentioned that problems that we see are political issues, and I and I still think that whatever improvements are made, I worry that they're done only as a political facade, not because there is a Deep systemic change within the society. But anyway, absolutely.
2: By- yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. I think that's also how I see MBS. I'm not seeing him as some kind of an Islamic reformer suddenly trying to re-engage with the very tradition of Islam. We know that what he's doing is out of political and I would say economic expediency, because the the world is changing. Saudi Arabia will soon soon hit peak oil. Hey-ho, that's the geopolitical reality we're looking at. And you're absolutely right. It will be top-down change because Saudi Arabia is a monarchy. It's not a democracy. There will never be consultative change there. Monarchies, by definition, are oppressive systems. And so oppression is going to be part and parcel of, of society there. From my perspective, purely looking at it from how the... Saudi government funded particular interpretations of Islam and the books that they flooded the market with and the websites they set up where a particular approach to Islam was being used. Well, here's a hadith based on this hadith. We're saying women can't travel alone. That was the approach they were taking. Suddenly that hadith has been consigned to the bin and it's OK now for women to drive. We know the reasons are political, but the, 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 the game that is being played here is at the level of how hadith is used as a precedent in lawmaking. And so these are really interesting shifts happening in, you know, in front of us. And you're absolutely right. I think because change is very rapid, it will be interesting to see where where this settles. But yes, in Saudi Arabia, particularly, it will be hierarchical by definition, because that's how the political structure is set up.
1: (laughs) So Farhad, I know you try very hard not to make the show political and the women have taken over. (laughs) No problem at all, no problem at all. Um,
3: Let me just say, um, I'm also optimistic about this. I think the progress is slow, but I'm seeing the progress. I mean, yes, I know 50 years ago, such technology that we are using today was not there, but assume this technology like Zoom and all this was available 50 years ago. Was it easy for for us, for you, to have this discussion 50 years ago and, and publish it? and receive some feedback, you know, it wasn't. But it is possible today, you comfortably do that. And yes, you may receive some negative feedback, but you also receive some supporting comments. Uh, That is a progress. In terms of the case that uh, Sitar said, I believe that, yeah, I mean, there can be lots of things that are motivated by politics and other things. What I think not all changes in a system Not all changes are happening necessarily from foundation to the surface. Sometimes changes happen from surface and then find its way to the foundation. So uh, it definitely will have influences. It definitely means something, those changes. I I agree with that. Hmm.
1: So Satara, you wrote an article that I really enjoyed reading, and this article was sort of a reaction to the Pakistani prime Minister sort of making a comment that was probably not very well thought out saying that in rape cases that are sometimes seen that it seems to be the woman's fault for not um, dressing in a certain way or basically bringing attention to herself. And I don't have in front of me the exact quote of what he said, but I know that it created sort of an uproar in Pakistani society. And you wrote quite a nice article explaining why he's wrong about sexual assault and you wrote how growing up in Pakistan, you were always very conscious of the way that you looked when you went into the street to make sure that you were covered properly, um, made sure that you didn't make eye contact with men or smile or do anything that would draw unnecessary attention. And it wasn't until you moved to the UK, I think, that you started to consider that in harassment cases, it's not the woman's fault, that she's not the one attracting the attention, that the responsibility really should fall on the man? Yeah, it's, um, I have to say
2: the article came from a place of passion. <laughs> um, it came from a place of anger. Because growing up in Pakistan, us, us women, we just carry the burden of other people's sins, to be honest. Um, from a very young age, it's instilled in us that if somebody whistles at a girl, it's, it's, it's the girl's fault. She must have done something to attract that behavior. So you carry the burden with you. That's what you're taught from a very young age. And when I moved here, you know, I was a mom. I had two two young twins with me. Uh, Britain was a completely different country from what I'd known in Pakistan. And I started to come across research on things, on issues of sexual harassment, um, why rape happens, what kind of a crime rape is, and also realizing the role that that the state has to play, the government has to play in ensuring safety of women and other vulnerable people. And so in that article, I was trying to capture quite a few things that not only um, are women carrying the burden of the, the sins that men are committing, because it's the women who are held responsible. And obviously, I'm very fed up with our traditional religious scholars saying again and again that women are a source of temptation. So I was saying, well, so are children what do we do with them should we should we cover them up somewhere and hide them you know temptation is all around us there, there, there is no valley in the quran here that allah has not said that we're supposed to eradicate temptation it's about how you deal with it and to, because muslims have a particular way of female uh, view of female sexuality as well you know women also find men very attractive <laughs> so for women men are a source of temptation <laughs> but you carry the burden of it you carry the burden of it you carry the burden when somebody behaves misbehaves towards you, you think, oh my God, what have I done wrong? Am I not wearing an appropriate style of dress? Is something wrong with my hair? Am I somehow looking attractive to be inviting this behavior? And what Imran Khan had done is that this so-called wisdom that has been handed down to, to, to Muslim women in Pakistan across the age and women in Pakistan in general, you know, across the ages, it is the woman's fault. What Imran Khan is doing is he is being careless, he is the prime minister of the country he is he by saying that he was absolutely enabling those people out on the street who's who who see sexual harassment as entertainment they have no clue of the harm it does to women psychological harm emotional harm physical harm was also saying that women's style of dress is responsible for the increasing vulgarity in society. Well, vulgarity in society happens from changing values in society. Harassment happens and crimes happen because the state does not protect women. And in Pakistan, we've had such a, a breakdown of law and order in the country that women are not safe. So not only is there not a deterrent, which would be your a, a good functioning judicial system, legal system would protect women. So there is no deterrent right and then you have social attitudes which pin the blame on women and so i was coming from a place of anger and saying that imran khan is well he's basically giving an excuse he's he's giving a get out of jail free card to people who are harassers who are criminals and it is wrong to do that it is wrong to blame women for this behavior and and Pakistani women are, and I always say this, very, very modest women. Most women I know, whether they're British women or Pakistani women or American women, are modest people. And so the whole thing about definitions of modesty and how women are blamed for being immodest or whatever, the issue, core issue in Pakistan is that even in the educated middle classes in Pakistan, a lot of men believe that a woman belongs inside the four walls of her home. The public space is not for her. The moment she comes out into the public space, she becomes public property and therefore can be dealt with, handled in whatever way people feel appropriate. Because really, if she was a decent woman, she would have just stayed at home. So by going out to study, going out to work, you are implicating yourself already as an immodest woman, hence stepping out of the threshold, <laughs> stepping over the threshold. Oh my God, what have you done? And imagine then being more vocal. So somebody like me has no space in, in, in a lot of in Pakistan, and in a lot of, um, I would say, even in, 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 in the education sector, if I was working somewhere in an organization, what happens is that you ghosted. So if I'm opinionated, if I have views about something, I would simply be ghosted. And people would pretend that I'm not sitting there at the table They'll talk over me. So we're so used to behaviors like that. And coming to Britain, of course, you can imagine that my sensibility is shifting entirely because suddenly now I'm treated as a person, my views matter, and I'm not being dismissed because of my gender. And even in when I'm sitting with other Muslim academics or in other circles, I know that even though religious men would want to dismiss me, they can't because socially it's unacceptable here, right? <laughs> so you can yeah. see how you can see how these things shift, right? Because the power is curtailed slightly. I know Imran Khan has since retracted what he said, but what he said was careless. And so in that article, I had brought uh, research that has been done by the United Nations, uh, research that has been done by, um, and it's available on on gov.uk, you know, in in the research on rape and harassment as crimes, the the characteristics of um, those crimes, who perpetrates those crimes, that data is available. There's a lot of research done here in Britain. Um, around social sciences, in in the fields of social sciences, um, criminology, et cetera, which isn't done in Pakistan. So one of the tragedies we have in Pakistan is that there aren't those reflective academic spaces where we would reflect on ourselves as society and bringing research on how our social attitudes affect this. So I was trying to then share some research and say, this is what the facts say, a woman is not raped because of what she wears. Because in Pakistan, the view is that rape is a crime of lust. And mm-hmm. I wanted to be very clear and say that rape is not a crime of lust. Rape is a crime of power. Mm-hmm. And it's always been recognized as a crime of power in Islamic law as well. It is called bil Jabr. Jabr means that you exercise tyranny or oppression towards somebody, that you try to overpower them. Mm-hmm. So it is a crime of power. It is not a crime of lust. Now, in Pakistan, basically what happens is if a woman gets raped, she's blamed. Her character is just torn to shreds uh, rather than being given the sympathy, the understanding, the rehabilitative support she needs to overcome something that has damaged her dignity. And I I don't see how you recover from something like that. And then to then deal with negative social attitudes and then have a prime minister who says that, you know, oh, look, men will be tempted, weren't they? They They're not robots. (laughs) But neither are women robots. They also get tempted as well when they see a very good looking man. (laughs) So it was just an awful and appalling thing to say and even now when i'm thinking about it i can see i can feel myself and my emotions um you know coming to coming to um the surface so yeah that's what that article was about and i think muslim women just need to feel confident pakistani women muslim women across the world just need to feel confident about challenging those narratives again and again and again get that knowledge together Thankfully, with the internet, we can do that quickly. And every time I say to, to, to women, when you come across a narrative like that, challenge it and challenge it
1: through reasoned argument because people can't fight that. They can't. The only time that I was inappropriately groped, it was nothing too severe, but it's when I was in India. And one of them was by a seemingly proper Muslim man with a picture of Mecca behind him in his shop. You know He's got the Kaaba above him, and then he starts to grab me and grope Mm -hmm. me. And so it just doesn't make sense. I've read very orthodox traditional Islamic scholars saying that if you go to the West, you're going to experience fitna because there's so many women walking around in shorts and tank tops and things like that. I know of Moroccan men here who prefer to go back to Morocco during Ramadan, because they say that it's too difficult being around so many scantily clad women during Ramadan. But honestly, sometimes I feel like it is the lack of exposure and a lack of normal human connections between women that cause men not to know how to interact around women. I agree. Yeah, I
2: agree. Because you mentioned a few minutes ago, you'd mentioned gender segregation, which has somehow become connected to Islam. There's nothing on gender segregation in Islam. I mean, the the Quran does not say anything about gender segregation. The Prophet's Mosque in Medina, do you think it had two floors, one for men and one dedicated for women? It was just a small space which was shared by men and women together. It had a thatched roof. No segregation was possible. That mosque was a community center. It was a place where political decisions were made, where Sharia was explained, where learning was done. Uh, where people got to know each other, um, I find it baffling that gender segregation has been linked to Islam. And then you see these bizarre situations where young Muslim men and women, right? So here I'm at I am at University of Leeds, a scholar, a very popular scholar from America comes in and he's doing a lecture, right? We're in a big hall, 300 plus seating, men and women, young girls and boys sitting together listening to the lecture, right? Then you get the same group out for namaz, for prayer, and suddenly they start segregating. And you're absolutely right. Segregation has meant that Muslim men often don't know how to behave around women. They simply don't know. Um, It is very much a shock to their system. Um, I have found Muslim men, too, they don't look at you sometimes, they stare at the ground. That's Mm -hmm. a very literal interpretation of of the Quranic verse. Mm -hmm. Um, They will not address you by your name. I have been told that if women laugh too loudly, that's a fitna, that's mm-hmm. temptation. And your laughter must not be heard outside the four walls of your house. So if you happen to have a loud laugh, my God, you're going to be told off for it. And so lots of these issues have happened because of that normality being taken away in that interaction between men and women. And as I was saying earlier, we, we share the planet with them. If Allah had put us on different planets, it would be a different matter. <laughs> but we share the same space. and. It is about that behavior. Interesting, the thing about scantily clad women. So my sons have been raised here. And I'm not saying that because I'm a perfect mom or anything. I'm simply saying that as a matter of observation. When I see them and their friends, teenagers, their age, talking to each other, I have not ever seen them mention a woman's clothes. So, for example, they wouldn't talk about their teacher's clothes, the female teacher's clothes. They just won't talk about it. They will go to gyms. They're not bothered. Um, The karate instructor was a woman. They have huge respect for her. And so the more you see women in public spaces out in a park as your karate instructor, as your teacher, Um, As your Quran teacher, you're just going to be comfortable with her and respect her for who she is. Whereas in Muslim countries, women's dress is always there as the big elephant in the room. It is always either talked about or not talked about, but it's implicitly there. And so there is this strange, obsessive focus on that. Um, And you're absolutely right. You will see very pious people. I have had some very lewd comments made to me by men with very long beards, (laughs) <laughs> who are very yeah. pious. And you can see the mark on their foreheads as well from saying their prayers five times a day. And it's interesting then these um, I suppose, dichotomies ap- appear in behavior. But it is because that obsession of this unhealthy obsession with women and their clothes and what spaces they occupy. And I think we just need to move beyond that and say, you know what, the believers like us, the human beings like us. But I think fundamentally that shift hasn't happened yet, um, certainly for, for a lot of Muslim men. I know I'm being negative, but this has just been my experience in general. Mm
1: -hmm. Farha, do you have any thoughts about this or anything else?
3: Um, Yes, um, it is interesting. This is not about politics, it's about societies. Mm Back in my country, Iran, although I think the situation in terms of men and women and all these things that you talked about, I think it's better than Pakistan there. But still, every now and then uh, you read something in the newspaper or you see in the videos um, incidents where men are shouting at a woman that why your hijab is not good, why your hijab is bad, And one of the arguments that they bring up sometimes, and of course I'm not talking about all men in Iran, but but some of them, is that you are oppressing my rights by not having correct hijab. Because by not having correct hijab, uh, you are putting me in, in a sinful situation. And that then continuous of that argument will then be what Sister Sitara was talking, that it is your fault if I am doing something bad as a man. And I sent a message in my Telegram channel a year ago, and the title of the message was, Oh, brothers, please consider the verse that talks to you is the one before that. And what I meant by that is that normally people look at verse number 31 in Surah Tanul, and that is the verse that talks about hijab and what kind of hijab women need to have. Now, what exactly the meaning of that verse is, and what is that hijab that verse is talking about? Well, the verse is not even referring to the word hijab, but what can be understood from that verse? That's up to discussion. It's not relevant to this session. But normally you find that men bring that verse and say, look, look, this verse says that you need to cover this or that. And my argument was that, excuse me, sir, have you looked at the verse before that? Because if you then look at the verse before that, and that is verse number 20, verse number 30, it says, min <laughs> This is very meaningful. I mean, there's a reason that this verse is before that. So the verse that talks about women need to cover particular parts of their body is coming after the verse that says to men, you need to guard your eyes. Guarding their eyes. That does not mean that, oh, look at the floor. That's not the meaning of it. That means that when you look at women, you need to look at them in a a normal way, without any bad intentions. So nowhere in the Qur'an, the responsibility of having piety and taqwa for men has been conditioned to women behaving. Men need to have their own taqwa. And it should be unconditional taqwa, not conditional to what is around me. This is the very meaning of taqwa. Piety. If taqwa, if piety was conditional to situation, then we all had excuses. The very meaning of taqwa and piety is that no matter what is going around you, you need to behave correctly. You need to have your modesty. So my, my advice, my humble suggestion to my fellow brothers, is to pay a little bit more attention to verse 30. Read it, read it regularly, read it occasionally, uh, before even starting to think that how a woman should cover herself. That is one thing. Um, The other thing I wanted to say is that in understanding Islam and in the scholarship of Islam, in particular, in approaching the Quran, broadly speaking, there can be at least four different categories or levels of looking at the Quran. In each one of them, uh, there is an assumption. And then when you you leave that assumption, you move on to the next category. So the first category, I would call it traditional category. I need to clarify what I mean by this. Uh, I don't mean traditional in, in the meaning that we are not paying attention to what we have in tradition. What I mean by that is what Sister Sitara also talked about, that we make our understanding of the Quran to be equal to the understanding of the past scholars. So, as soon as you, you have some quote from Tabari or Ibn Kasir or Imam Bukhari or whoever, well, this is it. This, this is what the Quran says. We do not understand and appreciate that, look, they were human beings. It was their views. They Yeah, great scholars, but it was their views. In this category, the allowance for maneuver is very limited. So you just move between these scholars. I agree with Tabari, but I do not agree with this. I agree with this, but I'm not agreeing with Tabari. But you're still in this limitation. I clearly remember many, many, many years ago, I was trying to explain some verses of the Quran for a group of people, and some of them, one of them, raised hand and said, "I'm confused." And I said, "Okay, explain for me. What's the reason for your confusion?" And he said, "The way that you're interpreting this verse makes sense." but then how come it is different from what Imam Tabari says? <laughs> I, I didn't know how to answer that question. In my heart, my answer was that I think you shouldn't be here then. <laughs> you should just sit down and listen and, and read Imam Tabari's writing. And this is interesting. Uh, Sister sitara knows that Imam Tabari himself was very open-minded. He was a person who brought different views in his books. He himself was very open-minded. So the first category I would call it traditional category. Maybe it's not the perfect word for it because it doesn't mean that we need to neglect the tradition, ignore the tra- tradition. That's not what I mean. But it's very much um, a category in which people just fix their thinking in terms of what past scholars have said. And it's very much also relying on hadith. Makes understanding of the Qur'an relying on hadith. And narratives. Then we come to the second category. The second category will be the one that lets go of this assumption that surely what our past scholars have said is 100% true and perfect and complete and there's nothing else to add. Let's go of that assumption. In particular, technically speaking, tries to understand the Quran from within the Quran and not based on Hadith in fact, tries to understand hadith based on the Qur'an. I Amin mean, Ahsan Islahi, Javed Ahmed Imam Farahi, some of the examples from the Shia Muslims, for instance, al Tabatabai. These are some of the examples of this category. But this category still has an assumption. And the assumption of this category is that, yes, we need to understand the Qur'an from within the Qur'an. But the ruling that the Qur'an gives Is forever the ruling that Quran gave 1400 years ago? 100% should be applied today and should be applicable, should be applied one million years from now as well, assuming that the world will not end in one million years before one million years. The third category lets go of this assumption as well, and I think from what Sister Sitara is talking, I'm getting impression that Sister Sitara is more comfortable with the third category. But please correct me if I'm not very accurate in that. The third category says, yes, definitely, we need to understand the Qur'an. Of course, from the Qur'an, yes, we can always use hadith as a secondary source as well, but Qur'an is a base. But hey, then, we need to understand the rulings of the Qur'an were not meant to be taken forever, all of them. Many of these rulings were because of the conditions of the time. So when these conditions change, when these conditions evolve, we need to try to then adjust the rulings as well. As Khaled Faz, that Sitara also referred to, says in his book, um, Reasoning with God. So Khaled Faz says something to the effect that when the ruling of the Qur'an came, it wasn't meant to be static. It's meant to be the beginning of a movement. If we do not see that movement and we stop it there, we are going against the wisdom behind that ruling. That is the third category. So Khaled Faz would be one of the people in that category, and there there are many others as well. And there is a fourth category, and can be fifth as well, but I'm not going to go there because it is beyond our discussion today. Question, is the Quran book of ruling, or is the Quran book of morality? Put it this way, is the concern of the Quran to establish rules or is the concern of the Qur'an to establish morals, morality. I go for the second. My understanding is that the Qur'an is not book of ruling. Qur'an is book of morality. And the reason of that is that the rulings in the Qur'an are subjective to the moral wisdom behind it. You know, in the ahkam, in fiqh, in jurisprudence, uh, there are the fuqaha, the jurists, they say that we have two categories of rulings in the Quran: ahkam, ahkamul imdai, ahkamul inshai Ahkamul imdai would mean the rulings that were confirmation of what already was happening, maybe with some adjustments. Ahkamul inshai would be rulings that were new, had no background in that society, and just came. Question, what percentage of the rulings of Islam belongs to the first category and what percentage belongs to the second category? I'm not saying that. The jurists say that. That something around 80%, something around 80% of the rulings in the Quran were ahkamul imzai, confirming rulings. Rulings that came, many, much of it was what people were already doing. And some of it, some slight adjustments to just bring some fairness. So this this thinking that the Sharia of Islam, Sharia in the meaning of ruling, because Sharia goes beyond ruling, but this thinking that the Sharia, the rules of Islam, dropped from heaven into a vacuum of the time in Arabia is totally wrong. The rules were there. People were practicing it. Most of them were adopted and just adjusted. And then some very few rules came down, which then means if the Prophet Muhammad was coming in a different country, different culture, different time, if he was coming in London and Britain today, huh, then what would be the Sharia? Again, something like 80% of it would be the ruling that you already have, but just with some adjustments. So that Western culture, Eastern culture, that does not have any meaning. And logically thinking as well, even a prophet of God, even a prophet of God will not be able to bring rulings to a land that is not based on their own culture and norms. That's impossible. That's impossible. (laughs) Even a prophet of God needs to bring rulings that are based on that norms and that culture.
1: So Farhad, you were talking about Khalid Abul Fadl and how he talks about the Quran as a revelation that was supposed to be the initiation of a movement. But I think this clashes with this idea of bidda or innovation being a problem. Like I, Muslims are very heavy on this idea of bidda, bidda, like this is innovation, this is bad. Now, in previous episodes, you've tried to make it clear that the bidda that is discussed in the Quran has more to do with not changing the, the form of worship that was established in the Quran. I don't know if I'm explaining that correctly or not, but that this idea of bidah shouldn't be used in such a wide way as Muslims tend to use it. Sort of the idea of innovation is misused because somebody coming from the outside look at this and says, how can Muslims evolve if they don't want any kind of innovation? Then how can you progress that it's, Islam is antithetical to innovation? So I think sort of establishing this idea that Islam is not antithetical to evolution in the sense of improving on um, what was set in motion in the Quran, improving our morality, improving our spirituality, improving our scientific endeavor, improving our relationship with the planet. We kind of improve. That's not a bad type of innovation. It's a good type of innovation. So just sort of bringing it to the fore and reminding people that that's the case.
3: And let me just quickly say something about this. And I am very interested to hear from Sitari about it. But uh, in my understanding, uh, Bida in the meaning that you were referring to would include those things that are brought to the system of religion that are not based on the ingredients of religion. That's my understanding. If we go with this understanding that any adjustment in the rules will be better, then I need to say then, please look at the history, and then you should conclude that... The closest companions of the Prophet had done lots of uh. (laughs) bid'ah. But that bid'ah is not that bad bid'ah. That was a good bid'ah. But the closest companions of the Prophet, it is very interesting that you find that the closest companions of the Prophet exactly, exactly looked at the context, and they would change and adjust some regulations because the society had changed only 10, 20 years after the prophets. And in fact, they would bring the same argument that, look, things have changed. So if we will go with that strict definition of bid'ah that, that some people are talking about, then you can accuse companions of the Prophet as well. Of course, <laughs> of course companions of the Prophet did not do that bad bid'ah, so we need to Re-evaluate and review our understanding of the word bid'ah, which, by the, by the way, is not a is not a Quranic concept anyway. It is coming from Hadith. So the Quran does not touch on that point. Okay, okay I, I leave it for Sister to talk.
2: Interesting that you've talked about accusing the companions of the Prophet. I was reading a text the other day, uh, just to do with my thesis, you know, on riba and various viewpoints on riba. And the writer in that book, whilst he's covering the viewpoints of the four madhabs, you know, the Hanafi, the Maliki, the Shafi'i, etc., he says that the early Sahaba, and he's talking about um, Ibn Abbasir in particular, who is one of the greatest authorities on the Quran, the early Sahaba had quite a liberal view of riba. And I'm sat there thinking, well, that's an interesting way to put it, just because the early Sahaba's view was different from how we were just to jibba, We're now using a modern term like liberal and saying the Sahaba were actually quite liberal. So quite interesting accusations towards the Sahaba show up. When we look at some orthodox opinion, or what's been accepted as orthodox opinion,
3: can I say, sister? Sorry, sorry. You you just motivated me to say something else, and and then I will I will I will shut up after that. Um, I was in this mosque uh, many years ago, and we were staying in that mosque for a while, and uh, I was sitting uh, in a way that my legs were towards Ghibla. I totally appreciate, I should have realized that culturally in that mosque, that was not a proper way of sitting, and I should have not sat that way. But the person who came to me, very respectfully, of course, and advised me, please, brother, can you not direct your legs towards Qibla? He said, it is disrespect, and it is against the sunnah. And at the time, being in the mosque, I didn't want to enter the debate, and I just said, yeah, sure, I apologize, and I sat in a different way. But later on, when I went home, because I knew this wasn't the case, I looked at the sources. This particular point, and all the scholars had already discussed this, and they had said that there's absolutely no problem we're having your legs towards Qibla, because it has been reported that the companions, many of them, used to sit like that in front of Kaaba. <laughs> right in front of Kaaba, they used to sit like that. Um, the, the, the issue of, for instance, um, women leading prayers that today seems to be like, oh, this is a very complicated issue. Again, when you go back to the literature, it wasn't that complicated. So it is it, what you're saying is absolutely right. It seems like at least the first generation of Muslims had much more in-depth and flexible understanding about these rulings, and when later generations started to be try to become more Muslims than them, okay. Sorry, I remember. Saying that. <laughs> Promise, it's very more rigid. Funds.
2: I think just on the, on the matter of bidah and innovation, um. My understanding of the term is the same, that it's to do with making any changes to ritual practice. So, for example, if you if you introduce a fifth rakah in in our established prayer, then you would then go into the concept of Bida and understand, try to understand that this is this innovation is actually messing with one of the fundamentals of of, of, of an Islamic form of worship. We can't really extend it to matters of law. Uh, or shun innovation simply because classical scholars themselves have always um, admitted to the chronology of the Quran and they have always talked about, and we have literature on this, although it's not as systematized as the Hadith literature, but there is an Asbabul Nuzul literature. Now, the Asbabul Nuzul literature gives you the chronology of a lot of the chapters of the Qur'an. And we know that, you know, chapter so-and-so was revealed, let's say, roughly in the ninth year of Hijra, and chapter so-and-so was roughly revealed in the second year of Hijra. And that chronology is actually quite essential in understanding some of the, the, the shifts in law that happen in the Qur'an itself, where the Qur'an has itself abrogated a couple of matters of law. So, you know, chronology and change is part of the Qur'anic revelation. And it's sad to see that Muslims have adopted this very rigid kind of anti-intellectual, what I always use the word, you know, calcified or ossified, like fossilized. We've adopted an attitude to our own sources of knowledge as if they're fossils, you know, stuck in a face of rock somewhere. And all we have to do is dust them and look at them. But the Quran is not a fossil. The Quran is a living, dynamic book. And the reason why it's a living, dynamic book is is because it has this interesting relationship with history. It has its own chronology. It has its own narrative. One of the most um, moving bits of text I've read about the Quran in terms of its history and seeing it as how it's situated in history is Kenneth Cragg's book, The Event of the Qur'an, Islam and its Scripture. I don't know if Farhad has read this or not. But apart from the fact that Kenneth Craig is approaching the Qur'an as an event in time, and then the relationship of the Qur'an with time and the timelessness of the Qur'an, the transcendental nature of the Qur'an. Khalid Abu Fadl also talks about it, that the Qur'an talks its own history. But then the Qur'an is also a transcendental book, And so it always holds within itself the possibility of talking to each generation of Muslims, every generation of humanity until the end of time. And Kenneth Craig then puts it in a very interesting fashion. And I'm sorry it's going to be a bit of reading, but I do want to share it because he's just so eloquent. I mean, I have loved reading this book. He says, this quality of history in the Quran, of the Quran as history, would seem so obvious and incontrovertible as to be superfluous to emphasize Were it not for the sustained reluctance of classical theology to allow the contextuality its full implications, to insist that there were occasions of and for the Quran is not to mean or imply that these were were also the causes of it, which is what doctrine makers have feared, nor is it to suggest or desire any sort of equation framed to say, to that time argues only to that time. This again is what orthodoxy has feared. In its anxiety to preclude an antiquarian Quran, it has fully failed to possess a historical one. The end of this timorous logic is precisely to incur the antiquarianism one fears and resists. For one cannot proceed to the abidingness of the Quran in word and meaning unless one intelligently proceeds from its historical ground and circumstance. The very irrelevance that belongs with the relegation to pure past is exactly the nemesis that awaits any will to escape it by ignoring the quality of the real past. To have the book immune from history is to make its own history irrelevant. And for me, this is one of the most eloquent ways of explaining this, that when we proceed intelligently from the history of the Quran itself, do we make sense of its universal principles? Do we make sense of its end goal if I can put it that way, the tazkiyah of of man, the purification of our nafs, the purification of our beings so we become better people. But for us to understand that we have to proceed from its historicity and I think that the issue we have and this whole bidah and innovation is so feared because the orthodoxy or the traditionalist lobby of Muslim ulama is just afraid. They are afraid that the Quran will be relegated to the past and yet They use rigid approaches that precisely fossilize the Quran. You fossilize it by saying that a woman can only travel on a camel, for example. You fossilize it, whereas that's not the point of the Quran. The Quran is saying something else entirely, for example. You know, the Hadith is saying something else entirely. Similarly, if the Quran talks about exile, as one of the punishments for muharaba for, for um, creating anarchy in land and for standing up against the, the established power of the state. And if it says exile people, well, where would you exile people now in a world of national borders and passports? How does exile happen? But if I insist on exile as the only possible form of punishment for but the point, I will inadvertently end up fossilizing the Qur'an. And so the, the traditionalists are so afraid of dealing with the Quran as a dynamic text that they have inadvertently made the Quran a rigid and frozen text. And herein lies the irony. And this is what we see in when it comes to matters of rights of women and where they belong and how they should dress and how they should laugh, is that their existence too has been fossilized. And so there is an imaginary woman from... 1200 years ago, who dresses in a certain way, she's imaginary, nobody's seen any representations, pictorial representations, perhaps people have read some descriptions of such an imaginary woman. But it is that imaginary woman of 1400 years ago that Muslim women of today should look like. And by insisting on that, what do you do? You fossilize the Quran, you fossilize the tradition of the. Whilst the traditionalists are thinking, actually, I'm making it transcendental. No, you're not making it transcendental. You would make it transcendental when you would establish the rights and the parities and the respect that God has established between men and women in the Quran. And I find that tragic because we are the only community of believers on this planet who actually hold God's revelation, his words. In a book, in each and every home, in my home, there is the Quran. When I look at the Quran, I don't just see a book or a bit of text. When I see the Quran, I see that as God's word. I'm actually holding God's revelation in my hands. It has been preserved for us. Herein is the blessing. Here is the Quran on my bookshelf. Why am I not reading it as a dynamic text? For me to read it as a dynamic text, I have to understand its own historicity. And if I don't understand its own historicity, I do injustice to the text. But our traditional ulama are absolutely terrified of recognizing the historicity of the Quran. That's not to say that we historicize away the Quran, or we say that the rituals don't matter or the rulings don't matter. But if I look at the ruling around murder, for example, the punishment for murder, and you know Farhad can come in at this point as well. But the Quran uses two approaches. One is retributive, the other is restorative. And so I can use principles of restorative justice today and come up with a very sound bit of ruling around um, the punishment for murder because the Quran says that the victim's family are empowered to forgive the murderer if they wish and if the court of law allows that. This is a restorative approach to justice. So the Quran is wonderful, wonderful in its wisdoms, but we don't look at those. What we look at is the literal ruling That's written in the Quran. And by using that literalism, that decontextualized, dehistoricized literalism, we actually take away the quality of history and transcendentalism in the Quran. We take away both. That's the tragedy. That's what we're facing today. I mean, this is my analysis now. It might be very flawed, but this is where I am at the moment.
1: It's wonderful. (laughs) I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that's exactly what it is. This is based on fear. And because of that fear, actually, Islam is, is reduced to to something historical, but not historical in the sense of understanding the context. But historical as in fossilized is that word that you use, which I love to use also. So I think right on, that's exactly, I think, what's happening. And it is sad. Farha, do you have any thoughts? A good no, place I think
3: it, it was a wonderful point uh, that Sitara made. I mean, if if I want to say it in my own words, I think what Sisir Sitara is saying is that not appreciating the historicity of the Qur'an uh, actually will result in fixing the Qur'an only for the old times and not having not, not seeing the benefit of it for our own time. So it defeats the purpose of people who are doing that. I think that's a wonderful point. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you. It is self-defeating. And, you know, scholars like Fazul Rahman have pointed this out before. Uh, Scholars like Professor Khalid Abul Fadla are pointing this out as well. And as you were saying earlier, Veronica, that they don't really have that mass audience. or if anything, they're vilified. They're vilified for that approach when actually what they're doing is they are bringing to us the very meaning of transcendentalism in the Quran. It must speak to me. It must speak to me Now, in the year 2021, the person that I am with my moral sensibilities and my realities and for it to speak to me, I have to mine it for the universal guidance that it includes. And yet, if you reduce it to a set of punishments or a set of laws, I'm not saying that the Sharia doesn't matter. Please, I want to say this. I'm not a secularist. I absolutely believe in divine laws and the divine and the wisdom behind those divine laws. But most of our Sharia, and Farhad would know this, most of our Sharia tradition has developed without systematically developing the rationale or the hikmah of the Quran. The scholars were satisfied as long as they could see what the substantive law was, what the positive ruling was. I mean, I see this in the matter of riba. You would have scholars saying things like, any increase on a loan is riba. That's not what the Quran is saying. The Quran has a particular rationale behind abolishing certain types of lending because it was exploitative. And yet no scholar has ever talked about exploitation. You cannot find a theory of exploitation anywhere when you discuss matters of riba. And so what I'm trying to say is that the the law in the Quran that riba is forbidden holds for all times. But in each generation, I have to find out what riba and exploitation look like because that will change. That would change. And that's where the transcendentalism comes from. But I think our traditionalists are just so terrified of approaching the Quran like that. And so we stuck with the Hanafi, the Hanafi said this and the Maliki said this and the Shafi said this and so on and so forth. Well, I would argue we live in a post mazhab world and we need to approach the Quran afresh and we need to read the people, the reformers who have emerged, thankfully, in the last 150 years. There's a huge amount of dynamism in the Islamic tradition now and um, in, in the interpretive community of Islam. And we need to engage with that rather than going back to rulings which were written 1100 years ago by men, primarily men who are product, a product of their socioeconomic, socio-political realities. They will talk about camels. They will talk about slaves because they, had, they, they used to travel on camels and slavery was still prevalent in society. But if I insist now on rulings on slavery that were drawn up by our Fuqaha to be applicable now, I suddenly have a problem, don't I? And so the Muslim imagination has somehow got stuck in the past. in a very, what I say to my, I was teaching some MA students for a number of years, uh, an MA MA Islamic studies course at Leeds, just um, a lecture cluster on the politics of Islamic finance. And I always used to say to them that the Muslim imaginary here is, you know, you put on these rose tinted glasses and the glasses are pink. And so when you look back, you know, all of the Islamic tradition of a thousand years ago looks very pink and rosy to you. But actually, that doesn't apply to us anymore, because that was a product of that time, the thinkers of that time. And there are some wonderful things in there that we can still use. But we have to come up with a fiqh, which is fit for our time. That is the process that is yet to happen. Systematically, that is yet to happen.
1: Well, inshallah, that will happen, especially if with these conversations, conversations like this keep coming to the fore and we can make these dialogues more commonplace. Um, Yeah then I think we will get closer to that.
2: Yeah, I think just literally two things from me, Veronica, and then I will go quiet, I promise. Um, One, I think Muslims in terms of going forward need to drop this um, belligerent or oppositional attitude to the West. The one thing I absolutely admire about the Western tradition of knowledge is the love of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Whatever comes your way, read it, engage with it. Don't be threatened by it. And I think that there is a lot that they, in the Western storehouses of knowledge in their in their libraries, in their archives, there is so much waiting for us. We should not be antagonistic, we should engage with it. And I'm not going to talk about any structural barriers to that. Yes, there are barriers and yes, we're still reeling from from what imperialism and colonialism has done to to, to, to the Muslim world what we must engage with learning as the Quran expects us to engage with learning, which is use your akal, use your reason and do tadabbur, think, ponder. That's our job as a Muslim. And the final thing I want to say, and my husband often says, it, and I really like it when he says it because it's just so emancipatory. He says, if Muslim men have been given a thousand years to make errors in law and in theology and in everything else, why not give women another thousand years to interpret the Quran and make errors? (laughs) why must we oppose them why must we vilify them Mm -hmm. let them do it it's their right, let them interpret Mm -hmm. so I'll end
1: on that note great fantastic, any other closing thoughts Farhad
3: Um, just to uh, add to what Sister Sitara said you know Ibn Khaldun he lived something around 700 years ago and he is perhaps one of the first people who wrote something about philosophy of history. And then he has this book, muqaddama which is Introduction to History. And one of the chapters of the book has a section. And the title of the section, if I translate it to English, is exactly like this. Why people from West are coming to East to learn and get knowledge. This was 700, around 700 years. And then he goes on with, with different assumptions, what might be the reason, and I remember he even says, maybe it's because of the cold in the West. So <laughs> the, the cold maybe does not allow them to, to think very clearly, so they come to us in the East. Of course, you know the mindsets uh, and the knowledge that was available at the time, but it shows the situation was different, you know, seven hundred, around seven hundred years ago, uh, people would come to the east to learn something, and unfortunately, it seems like uh, we have lost it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and now we need to say, look, 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 uh, you know, it's not like whatever you see in the west is is evil. People are interested in learning and knowledge here, you know, uh, so yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, th- thank you very much, uh, Sitara. It was very, very really helpful and uh, uh, I found it very interesting and very insightful as well. Thank you very much for coming to this. Oh, you're
2: most welcome. I've absolutely enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. I think we should do more of them, whether we record them or not is a separate matter. But it's just, <laughs> it's always uplifting, isn't it? It just rekindles your own your own belief, really.
1: Um, yeah, just reminds you about what's important in life. Mm-hmm. Yes, this conversation was fantastic, and I'm very excited to publish this so other people can join into the conversation. All right. Well, thank you, both Farhad and Sitar. I've really enjoyed this. Salam alaikum. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Veronica. Salam alaikum.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode. We welcome feedback at... One light chat at gmail.com. That's one light chat, O N E L I G H T C H A T at gmail.com. Or leave us a voice message at anchor.fm veronicapolo Veronica Polo. Peace and blessings.